Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. We start off our program with Chuck Swindoll interviewing and paying tribute to Howard Hendricks. Take us from your days as a student until you began to teach. Well, as long as I can remember, I have been teaching. Did you know as a student that you wanted to be a teacher? No, but I knew that that's where I was comfortable. So when I came here, which was 1950, that's the ending of World War II. And all the guys that came, they didn't know anything about the Bible. Yeah. So I taught them the books of the Bible. I used to meet up in third floor of Davidson. <laughs> yeah, you know, and teach them this type mm. of thing. No kidding. Because yeah. I, I love this place. I know. I mean, I'm not in it because I can't do something else. Or, I'm in it because I'm totally convinced that we've got the answer here. Call me selfish. I love to teach. I live to teach. And the result is, you know, I knew that there was going to come a time when, sure, you know, realistically, they're going to say, you're coming to the end of the ball game here. But uh, what, what has encouraged me more is the large number of guys teaching elsewhere who were the product of what I built into their work. You know, and that's the only thing. I mean, I, I'm, I never was concerned about money. I, I have to say that honestly. I, that's peanuts to me. I'll do it for nothing if you won't pay me. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you see what I You know? don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> you need to save that for our conversation, that's, that's not great. this. That's great. <laughs> I just... I've loved the whole experience. That's a tough thing to leave, isn't it? Well, on behalf of uh, what now, alumni? 10,000, 11,000? 13,000 alumni. Every one of whom, for the most part, went right through your courses. Uh, it has to be gratifying to know that a bit of you has now impacted their lives, changed their lives, gone with them, with us. And on their behalf, thank you for 60 plus years of faithfully holding forth like no one else we've ever been around. It's been sheer delight. We now continue our program with a sermon from Dr. Hendricks on Managing Time. One of the consistent means of separating the men from the boys is by their use of time. Men are not created equal. We are not equal in our background and privilege. We are not equal in our mental capacity. We are not equal in our spiritual gifts and our natural ability. We are not equal in our finances. 
We are not even equal in the amount of time that God has given to us. But a man's life is not determined by its duration, but by its distinctiveness. To every man, God gives a slice of time. And the success of that man is determined by his faithfulness in using that time to accomplish God's purpose for his glory. May I suggest a study for you, one that has been eminently profitable to me personally. And that is a study of what the scriptures say about time. It may transform your life and ministry all out of recognition. It may revolutionize your impact. And to whet your appetite, may I invite you to turn in the book of Ephesians to the paragraph in which you have Paul's command to Campus Crusade. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 was obviously given to this organization. Stop being drunk with wine. But be getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Did it ever occur to you that that is in a very instructive context? The paragraph begins at verse 15. See then that ye walk circumspectly. The Revised translates it, Look therefore carefully how you walk. Walking circumspectly involves walking with your eyes wide open, looking all around. And Paul says, take heed how you walk. Now he spells this out in the following statement. Not as unwise, but as wise. Give me an example, Paul. Certainly. Redeeming the time. Buying up the opportunity. Seizing the moments. The older I become in the faith, the more impressed I am that the management of my time is the greatest barometer of my control by the Spirit. If you want to know if you are really under the control of the Spirit, evaluate your use of the time God has given to you. You say, that takes discipline. That's right. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, and so forth. And in the end, so forth, 
is self-control. Do you control your time or do others? But someone always says to me, I don't have time. What a bromide. You look back in the same epistle, again, to very familiar verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, that is, the whole by grace through faith process. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, now note, which God afore prepared that we should walk in them. My friend, you have all of the time in the world you need to do the Father's will. To do the things that God hath prepared for you to walk in. And if you don't have time, it's for one of three reasons. Number one, you are doing too much. And it's very easy to become inordinately compulsive and to become enamored, almost convinced that God is impressed by what we are doing, and he's not. He is impressed by what we are. Because what you are will always determine what you do. A second reason why we do not have time is that we are doing the wrong thing. And I did not say bad thing. There's no decision in Christian experience to differentiate between that which is good and that which is evil. That's not where your hang-up comes. That's pretty clear. This is right. This is wrong. The real maturity comes in when you have to differentiate between that which is good and that which is better. Between that which is better and that which is best. And the good is the enemy of the better. Doing the wrong thing. I mean by that doing things that God has not called you to do. The third reason why I think a person says, I do not have time, is that he's doing things in the wrong way. It's not enough to be active in Christian work. You ought to be accomplishing something little verse leaped out of the scriptures many years ago and hit me straight between the eyes. It's a summary 
in the book of the Acts of the life of our Lord. And Jesus went about doing good. Most of our lives could be summarized, and he went about, period. <laughs> because, you see, we confuse activity and accomplishment. Oh, man, am I busy! Yeah, but the issue is, what are you accomplishing? Have you ever stopped long enough to get off the treadmill and to discover that your activity is simply the anesthetic to deaden the pain of an empty ministry? For a few moments this morning, as time allows, I'd like to share with you just a few things that the Spirit has been teaching me about what is involved in the process of redeeming the time. You see, redemption truth has an impact in terms of redeeming the time. First lesson that I'm still in the process of learning is the lesson of measuring your minutes. Time is really a great leveler. The only difference between any two individuals is not how many hours they have in a day. Everyone has the same number. It's simply how to use productively the time you do have. And most of us operate under the principle of pressure rather than the principle of priority. There was an article written years ago entitled The Tyranny of the Urgent. That's profoundly insightful. The urgent often is that which scuttles the doing of the important. Because the urgent i got to do right now. And the important is often decimated in root. Ever occurred to you that Jesus Christ only had three and a half years in which to launch a worldwide enterprise? You talk about pressure. And yet the interesting thing in the Gospels is that Jesus Christ was never in a hurry. Yet he always had time to do the Father's will. I find I'm always in a hurry and find it very difficult to do his will. The reason is he operated under the principle of priority. He knew his objective. My time is not yet come. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And on the cross, he could cry, it is finished, finished. Where in the world are the disciples, friend? They're out in Gooniland. They're out fishing. But you see, you can't measure the impact of the life of Christ until you see its results. And at the end of the book of the Acts, that simple group of common, unlettered fishermen were further toward reaching their world for Jesus Christ than we are after these many hundreds of years with all of the technological advantages which God has given to us. 
Gentlemen of God, don't ask God to give you more time. Ask him to help you use the time he has given you more productively. Put the clock on your minutes. Time is lost, not by larger units, but by the smallest of units. The 90th Psalm has been very encouraging to me, and particularly this morning, because I received news this morning that my daughter was in a very serious automobile accident, which the car was totaled, and miraculously she came out with some severe injuries, but with her life. And it's wonderful to have truth like this to use as an anchor. The 90th Psalm, my friends, is a contrast. It's a contrast between the permanent God and passing, perishable man. And in the 90th Psalm, I read in verse 10, the days of our years are threescore years and ten, or even by reason of strength, fourscore years. But it's soon gone. We fly away. James says your life is like a puff of smoke. Don't say we're going to do this or we're going to do that tomorrow in your business. The truth of the matter is you don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow. Always condition it by if God will. But verse 12 gives a conclusion. If our life, so brief, so passing, is what God has taught us, then so teach us to number our days that we may get us a heart of wisdom. In other words, teach us to pour eternity into time, to complexion our daily work with eternal values. I have a colleague at the seminary who some time ago got himself a little reverse dating stamp, figured out in his own mind what he might reasonably expect as a life duration if God gave it to him, and he stamps on every day in his calendar how many days left. You say, how morbid. No. How motivational. Friend, you don't have eternity in which to get this job done. You just have a little slice of time. And every day that goes by, you've got one day left. That becomes the motivation to apply your heart with wisdom to the use of the time God has given to you. A second principle, plug the leak. Plug the leaves. Time often slips through our fingers like sand through a sieve. And it's the one thing you can't store. 
You must use it. You can't reclaim it. Once it's gone, it is irretrievable. Some time ago, I conducted a week of meeting in the church of a young man, a graduate of our seminary. Started on a Sunday evening. From the time he picked me up to the, at the plane until the time he introduced me, at least six or seven times he reminded me that the service has got to be over by 9 o'clock. We don't want to shoot the series out of the saddle. So it's 8 to 9, and 9 o'clock, I want you to be sure to be finished. Well, I was soon to discover why. It really wasn't the people. It was the program on TV. The show started at 10. We had to get home. Jesus Hendrick, sit down. This is fantastic. Well, I said I appreciate that, but frankly, I'm very weary. I've been traveling all day and had a hard week. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll check it to you. He said, well, what time would you like to get up? All right, breakfast. I said, any time, friend. I said, I get up very early, but when you're ready, knock on my door. Quarter of 11, he knocked on my door. I was just about famished. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, this is a preacher's holiday. I don't know what he needed it for, but... All day long, he read profound books like Life and look with pictures for those that can't read. <laughs> he read other material that I would prefer not to refer to, certainly not either intellectually or spiritually edifying. I think he watched every single show on that TV. And never once during that week did I eat breakfast before 10.30. At the end of the week of the meetings, he had the brass to ask me, Prof, what would you suggest would help make my ministry more effective? And believe me, he asked the wrong man. For I jarred him no end when I said, what ministry? And do we ever have a discussion? <laughs> and I catch a plane at 7.30 the following morning, and I got two hours of sleep. That's how long the discussion lasted. When I got off the plane, it was very obvious to my wife that I was quite weary. She said, you had a hard week. Well, I said, not really. <laughs> she said, what well, is it a profitable one? I said, well, I don't really know, hon. But as far as I am concerned, if nothing happened during that entire week but the ministry I sustained to the pastor of that church, it was worth the entire investment. This gentleman has made a 180 degree turn. He has a ministry, not a mockery. And the reason is, in the process of plugging the leaks. 
of trusting the Spirit of God in the most practical area. Here's a third one. Learn to say no. The hardest word in the English language. You see, men, in order for me to be here this morning, this week, I had to say no to a dozen things. Good things. Attractive things. Things I would certainly enjoy doing. But I had to say no to them in order to say yes to this. And that's the story of your life. I'm so fed up with this legalistic bit that it's coming out my ear. And I'll tell you what I'm most fed up with. I'm fed up with a person that doesn't know beans from a hole in the ground about what the scriptures teach with respect to legalism. And somebody comes along to me and says, Hendricks, will you do this? I say, no, I really don't care to. Oh, you're a legalist. How ignorant can you get? When somebody says, why don't you do this? Is that on your list? One of the nasty nine? No, I don't do it for one simple reason, my friend. It interferes with the accomplishment of my objectives. Does that bother you? It's very simple. Does this help me to do what God has called me to do? No, it doesn't. Then, friend, I eliminate it. Oh, you mean I don't have the right to do it? Certainly I have the right to do it. I also have the right not to do it. And that's the right I've chosen to you. I'm finding an awful lot of people are defeated today for the simple reason that they don't know how to say no. And there's some of you that are already in the process of going down the tubes in your family because you don't know how to say no. Get all wrapped up in a campus ministry, all wrapped up on this military base, all wrapped up with this group of laymen. Oh, brother, what a ministry we're having. And meanwhile, back at home, you know what I have to do? And friend, it's rough. People call me up and they say, Professor Hendricks, would you come over to our church to speak? I say, no, I'm awfully sorry, I can't come. How come? Well, I'm otherwise engaged, which being interpreted means I'm staying home. When I was young and brash, they'd call me up and say, would you come over? I'd say, no, I'm sorry, I can't come. How come? Well, I'm going to play with my kids. You what? <laughs> you're going to play with your kids? You mean to tell me you're not coming to preach the word to us? That's right, I'm not coming to preach the word to you. <laughs> I'm going to apply the word in my home. Oh, that's how liberalism gets started in a seminary. <laughs> And I listen to that baloney, and that's exactly why I can be shot out of the saddle and road. Make no mistake about it, friend. It's a discipline for you to say no to all of those exciting ministries on the outside in order to fulfill the ministry God has given you in your home, and there's no conflict of duty in Christian living. Your call to be a father to be a husband is not in conflict with your call in the ministry. If it is, you should have remained celibate. And the whole process of life 
is sorting out the values, the priorities, learning to say no. Can I add one more? I'll give you two, but I'll only discuss one because I don't want to take the time. <laughs> Four. Relaxation is not wasted time. If it is to you, I got news for you. You are spiritually infantile. The reason why you're shot through with guilt complexes every time you take an hour to sit down and talk with your wife or spend with your children is that you've got an uneducated conscience. And that thing will whip the living daylights out of you. The greatest threat to your ministry is your ministry. Oh, boy, good night, I got to go. I got off the plane for a weekend meeting. I could tell his wife wanted to talk to me, so she got me to the side while he was going to get my bag. She said, Prof, would you do me a favor? I said, if I can. She said, will you do something to help my husband? She said, he has not taken a vacation in four years. He is now averaging four hours of sleep a night, and he's a beast to live with. Well, I looked for the opportunity, and about Thursday of the week, I said to him, we were driving down the road, I said, uh, hey, friend, how come you don't smoke? <laughs> don't smoke. <laughs> says, Prof, I've never smoked. <laughs> well, I said, I've been here all week, and I noticed you hadn't lit up. <laughs> and I was just wondering why. Why? <laughs> and he came through in true form. Oh, Prof, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Man, that's fantastic thinking. I said, is that also why you're averaging four hours of sleep a night? You see, this is the kind of sloppy logic we get trapped in. Oh, my body is the Holy temple of the Holy Spirit. Man, I'm not going to prostitute it to anything evil. but we sometimes do that by failing to recognize that we not only have a soul and a spirit, we've got a body. And it's the temple of the Holy Spirit and it needs to be cared for. Fifth one I want to just mention is tailor make your schedule. Tailor make your schedule. Make it to your own specs. You've got too many people running around pouring their life into somebody else's pattern. My friend, the pattern for the Christian life is not other Christians. It's Jesus Christ. So you better find out what is he saying to you. And whatever he says to you, do it. student came up to me some time ago and asked me one of those questions you sometimes wish students wouldn't ask. 
He said, Prior, if you had five more years to live, how would you spend them? You know what I finally came up with? Doing the same thing I'm doing right now. Because I'm satisfied that I am exactly where God wants me to be. And I can think of no better way to invest my life. Oh, but don't you know the Lord is coming? Yeah, I know. But don't use that with false motivation with respect to time. I don't know of any way that I would rather be found when the Lord comes than in the process of doing the will of God for my life. Conversely, I don't know of anything more embarrassing than to be found when the Lord comes in neurotic, compulsive activity outside of his will. Find out what God wants you to do, my brother, and do it with all of your heart. And if he comes tomorrow, you will receive, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, thank you for relating to the most practical and realistic areas of our life. We can rejoice this morning that you are not a God who's mocking us, who's asking us to do that which is humanly impossible. We remember that our Lord did not heal everyone, did not minister to everyone but he did the Father's will. And I thank you, Lord, for the realism of your word that gives peace even in the midst of testing for Christ's sake. been listening to Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.